What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You know that fresh produce is the best produce. That's why at Kroger, we invest in local farmers to bring you seasonal picks that taste fresh from the farm good, like sweet corn, refreshing watermelon, and juicy peaches. So whether you're a delivery lover, a picker-upper, or you shop in-store, your local produce always tastes 100% fresh, or you get a 100% refund guaranteed. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome once again to the Fight Game Media Network's own Pound for Pound podcast. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. Today we'll be talking about Jared Anderson's toughest fight of his career so far, his fight against Charles Martin this past Saturday night. We will take a look at the two big welterweight bouts coming up this upcoming Saturday. I will make my prediction for both fights. I will have an extended Q&A session and my 20th knockout of all time and my greatest knockout series. Mike Tyson's November 1986 second round destruction. Of Trevor Burbick. But before I begin, ladies and gentlemen, I've been plugging every week on this podcast my Patreon exclusive podcast, The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali. Well, in a couple of weeks, you will get to sample what that Patreon podcast looks like. Because in two weeks, I will have a special free Patreon preview. Of my life and times of Muhammad Ali Here on the Fight Game Media Network Free feed When I will take a look at The March 8th, 1971 Epic, iconic, legendary encounter Between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier You will hear me do a play-by-play I will talk about what was going on In both men's lives Going into that fight As told to, my fa- as told to me by my father As my father and I had several conversations about Muhammad Ali's career throughout his entire life raising me and me being a boxing fan, basically from when I was eight years old at the beginning of 1977 until when my father passed away in 2000. So this project of mine that's Patreon exclusive, except for the preview you're going to hear in a couple of weeks when you hear my analysis and career um, historical overview of Ali versus Frazier, the first fight, all of this that I talk about on the Patreon podcast on the Life and Times of Muhammad Ali are anecdotes from my father that he instilled in me throughout several conversations he and I had throughout my lifetime before he passed away in 2000. I, each 
episode, I do a play-by-play of the fight. This will be number six in the series. The first five is only available on the Patreon feed. The link is in the description of the podcast. You, But episode number six, in a couple of weeks, you will hear the epic encounter between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. And you decide for yourself after listening to that free preview whether or not you want to subscribe for $5 a month to the Patreon feed of the Fight Game Media Network. Now on to Saturday night's fight. This past Saturday night, Jared Anderson versus Charles Martin. I had predicted a fourth-round knockout for Jared Anderson. Well, I was right about who was going to win the fight. I was wrong about how it ended. Charles Martin gave Jared Anderson easily the first big test of his career. And did Jared Anderson pass? Well, before I say whether or not he passed, let's look at what happened. First three rounds was all Jared Anderson as Charles Martin kept moving, moving, moving. In the third round, a Jared Anderson, who had switched to softball, landed a beautiful right hook that dropped Charles Martin. Charles Martin claimed that the, the legs had gotten twisted. No, the legs did not get twisted up. It was a picture-perfect right, right hook, not right cross. Why was it a right hook? Because... Jared Anderson was in the softball position. So when you're fighting as a softball and your lead hand is the right jab, you hook off that jab. That's what he did. He knocked him down. Bernardo Osuno was the lead announcer, as I don't know where the hell Joe Tessitore, that horrible announcer was. But Bernardo, once again, an announcer that, Really pissed me off. In the first round, Jared Anderson landed a nice right cross, and Osuna erroneously called it a right hook. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you this over and over again. When it's a straight punch, it's a right cross. When I'm, if I'm an orthodox fighter, and I lead with my left jab, and I come over the top with a right hand, it's a right cross, not a right hook. I'm tired of these announcers making the same mistake over and over again. And one thing you will hear in a couple of weeks, when I do the Ali Frazier fight, I do the, I, I reenact the play-by-play. I will not make that mistake. Anybody who has subscribed to the Patreon has heard my play-by-play of the first five fights that I talk about in Ali's historic career. I never make make that mistake. Go back to the Andre Ward historical overview that I did last month when I reviewed the incredible Showtime documentary and I did a reenactment and play-by-play of his win over Sergey Kovalev, the second fight. I called every punch exactly the way it's supposed to be called, the way my father taught me the way the textbooks say the punches are. Anyway, Jared Anderson was landing a nice left jab to the body, landing right crosses, and Charles Martin was moving, 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 and I guess he was trying to lure Jared Anderson into deep waters. First four rounds I gave to Jared Anderson. Then in the fifth round, Charles Martin staggered Anderson with several booming left crosses. And Jared had to hold on, and he was severely hurt. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Charles Martin made a big mistake here. After he hurt Jared Anderson, he continually headhunted. He kept throwing that left cross. Now, it landed three, four times, kept hurting Jared Anderson, but I always 
always advise fighters that when they hurt their opponent to go to the body. My father always stated that when you hurt the guy, go to the body because he's not trying to protect his body. He's trying to protect his head. I think if Charles Martin would have went to the body after he hurt Anderson in the fifth round, he might have had a shot at stopping Charles uh, uh, Jared Anderson. Jared Anderson cleared his head and in the sixth round began to use that jab as the most effective weapon for the rest of the fight. Round six through nine, Jared dominated with the jab. I, I told people this since I first saw Jared Anderson. He reminds me of a young Riddick Bowe, the Riddick Bowe before he became the heavyweight champion of the world with a beautiful left jab and and tremendous power in both hands and an excellent fighter inside for a tall guy. For a guy six foot four, Jared Anderson fights well inside. He reminds me a lot of Riddick Bowe. And he dominated, landed the jab. Uh, he began to close up Charles Martin's eyes. But then at, towards the end of the 10th round, Charles Martin staggered Jared Anderson with about 10 seconds left in the, in the fight with a beautiful left cross again. The bell saves Jared Anderson. He was hurt when the bell rang. He was hurt. So... I gave rounds 5 and 10 to Jared Anderson because he hurt Anderson in both those rounds. So I gave Charles Martin rounds 5 and 10. The only two rounds I gave him. My final score was 98-91 Jared Anderson as he won all the other rounds convincingly. Did he pass this test? It was his first fight against a real fighter. The first non-cab driver. The first non-bum that he fought and he won. He recovered from being hurt. He relied on that jab to lead his way to victory. He boxed his way to victory after getting hurt. So, yes, he passed his test. Now, who should he fight next? Ladies and gentlemen, if he wants to if he wants to fight outside of top rank, to me, you got to put him in the ring with either Daniel Dubois the winner of Joe Joyce versus Zhang. The rematch is coming up in a couple of months. Or Luis Ortiz. I would love to see him fight one of those three guys. And if those fights can't happen, put him in the ring against Bakadir Jalilov. And, or... Aslanbek Mahmudov. Both of these fighters are top or undefeated top rank fighters. Why baby step all three? You got these three guys. Put Jared Anderson in against either Mahmudov or Jalilov. I want to see it. I want to see it. Jared Anderson should not be... Fighting any more stiffs. Charles Martin should be the first of many former champions or or, or uh, contenders, heavyweight contenders that he should be fighting from now on until he gets a shot at the heavyweight championship of the world, hopefully against Usek sometime within the next two years. But he's not ready for Usek. If he really wants to fight Usek in the near future, or an Anthony Joshua, or Deontay Wilder. He needs to get through these hurdles. Jalilov, 
I want to say this guy, Mahmoudov, Zhang, Joyce, Dubois, Ortiz. He should be fed these type of fighters. And if he wins and looks impressive against most of these guys, because he's not going to fight them all, he's got to fight at least half of those guys, in my opinion. He's got a lot of tremendous talent. He's got a lot of natural ability. He needs to no longer fight bums and keep fighting good fighters, contenders. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before he even thinks about fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world. Now, on to the Q&A session. And I want to segue to a question that my brother, my African brother, Mdube asked. And let me get the question. He wrote, the smaller guy trains durability and defense. And the big guy trains dealing with faster opponents while working the footwork. Do I get it right? Did he get it right? What Mdube's talking about is for the last year to year and a half, Shakur Stevenson and Jared Anderson have been sparring against each other. And I like this because Jared Anderson is eight inches taller than Shakur Stevenson. And so if Shakur can make Jared Anderson miss... Ain't nobody at 135, 140, eventually 147, because I see Shakur eventually becoming welterweight champion of the world in a few years. They're not going to hit him. If a heavyweight who's quick and powerful like Jared Anderson can't hit Shakur Stevenson, nobody at 135, 140, 147 is going to hit Shakur while he's in his prime. And what benefits... Jared Anderson and Dubai, you hit the nail on the head. If he's able to hit Shakur or uh, able to crowd Shakur, a much faster fighter than him, it helps him against quick heavyweights because there's not a heavyweight in the world as quick with the hand speed and the foot speed of a Shakur Stevenson. So you're right on the money, M. Dubé. Great observation. I had said the same thing when I first saw them spar over a year ago. So you and I are on the same page, big man. Okay, next question is from Team FDDA on Twitter. And by the way, if you want me to answer your questions, hashtag Ask Rob Silva. Hashtag ASKROB. S-I-L-V-A. And uh, be patient. 
Twitter. I don't know what the hell Elon Musk is doing. Um, you're limited to to tweeting and reading tweets tweets on a daily basis. I have to screenshot these questions because if I'm tweeting one day and you ask, you go to hashtag Ask Rob Silver, I might not see it until the following day. You could also DM me. Robert Silver 5768 is my Twitter handle. DM me if you if you want instead of um going to hashtag AskRobSilver or do both. Do both. Anyway, Team FDDA on Twitter. Ask the ask the question. Let me make sure I get this right. Thoughts on Jermaine Taylor's career overall. Jermaine Taylor should have been a Hall of Fame fighter. Jermaine Taylor should have been an all-time great fighter. But mental issues got in the way. And it could have been involved with CTE. Real quickly, he beat Bernard Hopkins twice back in 2005. And ladies and gentlemen, Bernard was not robbed, even though a lot of idiots out there claim Bernard was robbed. Look at both fights. Bernard Hopkins gave away the first six rounds in both fights. He did absolutely nothing for six rounds in both fights. You got a 12-round fight, and if you give away the first six rounds, if you just stand there like a statue like Bernard did while Jermaine Taylor was was uh, carrying the action with his left jab, Yes, Bernard dominated the second half of both fights, but he gave away the first six rounds. Look at both fights. He barely threw any punches. So Bernard did not get robbed in those fights. Jermaine Taylor earned both wins, and he was well on his way to becoming an all-time great. He had to fight a he had to come from behind and win the 12th round to secure a draw against Winky Wright. Winky Wright gave away the 12th round. If Winky Wright fought the way he fought the first 11 rounds, Winky Winky wins that round, Winky wins the fight. But by Winky losing the fight, it was a draw, and I had it a draw. I had it six rounds apiece. I gave Jermaine Taylor the 12th round. Very good middleweight fight. But then Jermaine Taylor knocked down Ke- Kelly Pavlik early in their first fight and looked like he was about to put Pavlik away. And instead of focusing on that great left jab of his, he began to slug with Pavlik, and he got caught, and Pavlik came back, knocked out Jermaine Taylor. Second fight, a tremendous fight. Jermaine Taylor was taking a beating early, but came on strong to lose a close decision. So he lost those two fights to Kelly Pavlik. He moves up to super middleweight, and he goes into the super six showtime super middleweight tournament he's beating Carl Frotch who was just inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame he's way ahead on all three scorecards going into the 12th and final round when Frotch catches him and knocks him out late in the fight in one of the great come from behind knockout wins of all time and then Jermaine Taylor is brutally knocked out in his next fight against Arthur Abraham I believe because of those two losses and the beating he took against Kelly Pavlik, he suffered from CTE. He began getting involved in domestic disturbances, domestic abuse of his wife. Uh, she was a former WNBA ball player. I forgot her name. 
but uh, she put an order of protection against him. He uh, retired for a few years, came back and actually won a version of the middleweight title when he beat, I believe, Sam Solomon to win the IBF title several years back. But then he never fought again because he went back to being mentally insane. Jermaine Taylor is on the same level as a, of a Ike Ibiabuchi, where he should have been an all-time great, but mental issues, domestic issues, issues dealing with the abuse of women. Ike Ibiabuchi was convicted of rape and spent several years in prison. Jermaine Taylor abused his wife. And as I think he's fought once in the last eight years, and that's it. Uh, Jermaine Taylor should have been an all-time great. He had Hall of Fame ability, but he was a piece of shit after getting out. And, you know, it really hurt because I remember when he first started dating his wife, and they looked like, and HBO would show features on them, and they too looked like they were in love. Something snapped inside that dude. And Jermaine Taylor, when he was in the Olympics, 2000 Olympics, he was looked as the biggest star coming out of the 2000 Olympics of a great Olympic team. You had some very good fighters on that Olympic team. Brian Valoria. You had, you had some tremendous fighters come off that Olympic team. Jermaine Taylor was touted as the star of that 2000 Olympic team. Unfortunately... The demons got the better of him, and I all—I oh, blame it all on CTE. Those knockouts that almost—well, they concussed him. He—I believe he had bleeding, bleeding in the brain after getting knocked out by Arthur Abraham. He never recovered from those beatings, and right now he's a psychological mess, unfortunately. Okay, next question. By the way, thanks, thank you, Team FDDA. Next question from my man Jay Baby Ears. In your opinion, is the is the corruption in boxing still at a high relevancy today? Oh yes, it is, because you have fighters that have no business being ranked, ranked, no business getting title shots, getting title shots. Raleigh Romero never fought a fighter one forty. Never beat anybody of any substance, and he got an automatic title shot at 140. And then wins the fight in nefarious fashion when the referee stopped the fight. Tony Weeks stopped the fight, and the, and his opponent, Ishmael Barosa, was way ahead and didn't look like he was in any danger. That's just one example. Every promoter has a sanctioning body under they're under their thumb, whether it's PBC, whether it's Bob Arum, whether it's Eddie Hearn. That continues to this day. Back in my back in my youth, in my youthful days from when I was eight years old in 1977 throughout my teen years in the 1980s, the WBA stood for whatever Bob Arum. The world of the world of Bob Arum and the WBC was we be corrupt because Don King owns us. It continues to this day. 
whatever um the PBC I believe is in bed with the WBC and Bob Arum's in bed with the WBO whatever they say goes period end of story if Bob Arum snaps his fingers his fighter gets a title shot even his fighter lost so thank you Jay a question from my buddy from ten, uh, Detroit born now living in Tennessee former member of the United States military Kobe Jackson asks do I feel that Willie Mays is the greatest baseball player of all time well I don't do greatest of all time I do greatest of my era greatest of my lifetime started watching baseball in 1977 but Kobe my father said the greatest baseball player he ever saw was Willie Mays and Ken Griffey Jr. was number two alright so if my father was alive he'd say Willie Mays won he would go Willie Mays won Ken Griffey two Barry Bonds three and uh Ricky Henderson four. Now, Shoei Otani is making a bid, and if he continues on the pace he's going, he's going to be a top five of all time. He might make my Mount Rushmore of baseball players of my lifetime because the three greatest I've ever seen was Griffey, Bonds, and Henderson. Otani has a chance of being number four if he continues to pitch like a Hall of Famer and hit like a Hall of Famer. He's doing things you haven't seen since Babe Ruth. But for all intents and purposes, to answer your question, my father would agree with you, Kobe, that Willie Mays was the greatest baseball player of all time. All right, my final question is from my good friend from the UK, Luigi. Uh, Luigi, the Italian stallion. Luigi. Luigi asked, and this is a great question. He asked, where's, where's your question, Luigi. Who's the better pound-for-pound pound fighter, Manny or Floyd? Not who's the better fighter overall, but better pound-for-pound, pound, given that Manny is the only eight-division champion in history. My vote is Pacquiao. Now, I want to make this comparison between Pacquiao and Mayweather. Both their quote-unquote uh, never-before-seen achievements are overrated. Pacquiao won eight titles in eight divisions. I would only say six because he beat David Diaz for a, a criminal cartel lightweight title. And David Diaz wasn't even one of the 10 best lightweights in the world at the time. He was an undeserving champion. The best lightweights in the world at that time, 2008, were Joel Casamayor and Juan Manuel Marquez, who later that year fought for the lineal lightweight title. Now, of course, uh, Manny would fight Marquez three more times after he beat uh, Diaz. One fight, two fights he won, and one fight he got knocked out and put to sleep. I don't consider his 135-pound title win over David Diaz a legit world title, and I don't consider his 154-pound title win over Antonio Margarito a legit title. At that point in time, when he beat Margarito, it was because Sergio Martinez had vacated that criminal cartel title. The number one contender wasn't Manny Pacquiao, wasn't Antonio Margarito, it was Canelo Alvarez. Bob Arum, corruption in boxing, got Antonio Margarito, who had just come off an almost lifetime suspension of trying to cheat against Shane Mosley, 
He wins one fight and he gets a title shot despite the fact that he was bad from boxing for a year. Got a title shot against Manny Pacquiao who never fought at 154. That was a bogus world title because Bob Arum knew that Margarito had no shot in hell at beating Pacquiao. Pacquiao gave Margarito a beating. A 12-round beating. Ladies and gentlemen, and Luigi, you know this. Anybody could be a world champion. Now, look, I'm not going to say that Manny is not an all-time great. In my lifetime, I consider him the 11th greatest fighter of the last 47 years. And he won legit world titles at 112, lightweight, at 122. At 126 and 130 were probably his best years beating Destroying Eric Morales twice. Beating the hell out of Marco Antonio Burrow twice. Almost beating, knocking down Juan Manuel Marquez, Juan Manuel Marquez, four times in the first round before tiring and losing the late rounds. And Marquez got a draw, even though I thought Manny won that fight. Some bad uh, judging in the first round. Had the, had the judge, had one of the judges scored the round 10-6 like it was supposed to be instead of 10-7, he would have won, no, won the fight by split decision. 140 was a legit world title because he knocked out Ricky Hatton, who was the lineal champion. 147, he beat up Miguel Cotto. Great win, great win, great win. But when he fought Floyd... For the lineal welterweight champion of the world, Floyd dominated him, and Floyd would have always beaten Manny. Now, you make the case because he won all these uh, titles that he's the better pound-for-pound fighter. I don't go by that. I go by who had the better career, who was the better fighter. Floyd's the better fighter. That pound-for-pound thing, I don't recognize because today we have Multiple world champions, at least four. Some divisions have eight to ten world champions in the division because the WBA has multiple world championships. The WBC has multiple world championships per division. Manny won legit titles at 112, 122, 126, 130, 140, and 147. I'm not going to argue that. 135 was a joke. Uh, David Diaz, no. 154 was a joke. Antonio Margarito, no. And let me not forget about Floyd. People talk about, oh, Floyd beat 26 world champions. Half those dudes weren't elite fighters. Half those dudes wouldn't have won titles 20 years ago, 30 years ago if it wasn't for the proliferation of criminal cartels, sanctioning bodies. You got four alphabet soup organizations that you could fight for world title and multiple uh, you got the super champion the regular champion the franchise champion no 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 the 26 fighters Floyd beat half those guys do not belong in the ring didn't belong in the ring Robert Guerrero are you kidding me a washed up Andre Berto no that being said, both are two of the greatest fighters of all time. In my lifetime, I got Floyd as the second greatest fighter of all time. Manny is the 11th greatest fighter of all time. Once again, thank you, Luigi, for that great question. And now, 
on to my predictions for this for this week's upcoming fights. And we've got let me make sure I get this correct. First, we've got Imanius Stanionis versus Virgil Ortiz to fight on the zone. This is a fight of the year type fight. Both men are offensive minded, fan friendly. Neither one can guard a punch to save their life. This is going to be a great action packed brawl. And I got Ortiz winning by seventh round TKO. And then you have the guy I consider the future of the hev- of the of the welterweight division. Jaron Boots Ennis versus Roman Villa. Villa's gonna come and, and pressure Ennis and he's gonna walk into a spectacular spectacular either left cross or right hook. Good night, Irene. I got Boots Ennis by six round knockout. Boots by six-round knockout. Virgil Ortiz by seventh-round knockout upcoming. And now on to my greatest knockouts in boxing history. Okay, I wrote this article on FightGameMedia.com two and a half years ago. My 20th greatest knockout in boxing history, Mike Tyson versus Michael Spinks. And I wrote, Boxing's heavyweight champion of the world used to be considered the premier athlete in sports. Men like Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, and Larry Holmes became almost mythical-like figures while carrying the mantle of heavyweight champion. Mike Tyson continued this tradition with his mercurial rise to the top of the division. The late 1980s saw Tyson as the biggest sports star on the planet. On the eve of his 22nd birthday, Tyson was as invincible as any athlete that ever lived. The only thing that was missing was that Tyson knew he wasn't the true heavyweight champion despite owning the WBC, WBA, and IBF titles. That distinction belonged to the lineal champion, Michael Spinks. Spinks, after a dominating run as as light heavyweight champion, became the IBF heavyweight champion after dethroning the aforementioned Holmes in September of 1985. A few months later, legendary promoter Don King, in association with HBO, unveiled the tournament to crown the first undisputed heavyweight champion in eight years. Spinks won his first two fights in the tournament before pulling out of the tournament in early 1987 in order to fight Jerry Cooney for a much more lucrative payday. Ladies and gentlemen, he was offered less than half a million by Don King to defend against Tony Tucker. He got five million, I believe, instead to face Jerry Cooney. Despite being stripped of the IBF belt, it was a shrewd and wide decision by wise decision by Spinks. Not only was he getting a much bigger payday fighting Cooney than whatever King would pay him in the tournament, the fact that he was still lineal champion would would all but guarantee him a fight against the winner of the tournament. The tournament went when it was never in question once Mike Tyson became an entrant. My father loved Tyson's hunger inside the ring. My father taught me that the most lethal combination in boxing was incredible talent and hunger. Tyson possessed both at the time, and my father was right. Was right. Tyson was basically living on the streets as a 13-year-old, beating up and robbing people when he was sent to a youth detention group home in upstate New York. 
While there, he caught the attention of longtime upstate New York trainer Customato. The model would mold Tyson into a near per- picture perfect fighting beast, as well as a, as a, adopting him as his son. Because the elderly D'Amato was 77 years old when Tyson turned pro in 1985, Cus's disciple, Kevin Rooney, took over the reins as Tyson's chief second. D'Amato died on November, 19, November 4th, 1985. My father felt that his death would make Tyson, my father felt that Cus's death would make Tyson even hungrier and more dangerous, dangerous in the ring. It was also the first event in Tyson's life that was an opening for the nefarious king to get involved. In less than 18 months as a professional, Tyson had fought 27 times, winning all but two by knockout, including knocking out WBC champion Trevor Burbick in two rounds on November 26, 1986 to become champion at age 20, the youngest champion in the storied history of the division. Ladies and gentlemen, I made a mistake earlier in the podcast. I said this was going to be the fight I talked about. No, it's his fight against Michael Spinks. Tyson's knockout of Trevor Burbick is, I believe, higher on my rankings, and we'll we'll talk about that fight in a few weeks. Like I said, more on this fight in a later article. Suffice to say that with this victory in his first tournament bout, HBO and King were banking on Tyson winning it, winning it all. I was away from home while attending college in New Orleans at the time. My father told me the night after on a long-distance phone conversation that there was nobody at heavyweight that stood a chance against Mike. His hunger and skill level was something that was unmatched. Tyson defeated the WBA champ Bone Crusher Smith and IBF champ Tony Tucker in consecutive 12-round decisions to unify all three governing sanctioning bodies. This, coupled with Spink's fifth-round destruction of Cooney in June of 1987, will culminate in the signing of the biggest prize fight ever financially up to that point. Tyson lost another close confidant to death, his co-manager Jimmy Jacobs. With Jacobs and D'Amato now both out the way, King was able to worm his way into being a single guiding factor in Tyson's life. This will be chronicled in further detail in a future article. The fight was a complete mismatch. The night of the fight, I was on summer break from school. My father and I were at a dingy nightclub in Greenwich Village to watch the fight. The tickets were only $15 a pop, so I can't complain that much. As we sat in a packed club anticipating the fight, my father, who was completely inebriated, predicted the fight wouldn't go 90 seconds. He was wrong. It lasted 91 seconds. The reason Pop predicted it wouldn't go 90 seconds was because Spinks delayed his ring entrance, which infuriated Tyson to the point where he punched a hole in the dressing room wall and that Spinks also had braces on both knees. He was a sitting duck as evidence from the very beginning of the fight. Tyson came straight at Spinks and dropped him with a thudding right to the ribcage just over a minute into the fight. Spinks got up at the count of four. After referee Frank Cappuccino's mandatory eight count, Spinks immediately walked into a thunderous right cross that sent his head bouncing off the canvas. Spinks, in his attempt to get up, almost fell through the ropes as Cappuccino counted him out. Tyson was finally the universally recognized, undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Spinks, three weeks shy of his 32nd birthday, took his shot knees and $15 million payday and immediately retired. Tyson was at his most invincible that night. Unfortunately, the night of his greatest triumph was also the beginning of the end of his invincibility. More on that later on. 
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, it was my pleasure to bring you my knowledge on boxing, to bring you my uh, passion in the sport of boxing, to give you my thoughts on the sport that I love more than anything on this planet. One last thing before I sign off. ESPN made a massive amount of cuts this past week. I, I believe it was Friday. We had a bloodbath at ESPN where they fired Jalen Rose, Jeff Van Gundy, Susie Colbert, and Max Kellerman. I've got issues with Max Kellerman. He's been kissing Bob Arum and Top Rank's ass since he since they got the contract at ESPN. He's been um, touting Jake Paul as a legit boxer. I've got issues with that. But one thing I cannot deny is that Max Kellerman is a great historian. I I cannot deny that he's not a great historian. I cannot deny that Max Kellerman has a passion and love for boxing. Out of all the guys... That are in ES that work for ESPN under the boxing umbrella. He's the best of a bad lot. I mean, come on. Timothy Bradley is still working. Joe Tessitore is still working. Bernardo Asuna really spit the bit this past week. Mark Kriegel is one of the worst boxing analysts in the history of the sport. Doesn't know shit about the sport. I understand that Max Kellerman probably makes more than all those guys combined, and they what they did was they got rid of a lot of high-priced talent. But Max Kellerman should still be at, at ESPN. It's a sad state of affairs when Timothy Bradley, Mark Kriegel, and Joe Tessitore still have jobs, and none of those guys have the knowledge or passion of Max Kellerman. So uh, while I have issues with Max Kellerman, he's become a big, big, he became a big cheerleader for top rank and he was looking the other way. I hope he learns a lesson that all the ass kissing in the world will not stop you from getting fired. Hopefully they do the same to Timothy Bradley, Mark Kriegel, and Joe Tessitore. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, be blessed and be a blessing. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.